Hi there, it's Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, where we recall a year in the life of an English teacher in China, that's me, and delve into Chinese history and culture and whatnot. Today we scale Changshu's only mountain, find the town's version of China's Great Wall, and discover the remarkable story of a long-lost painting. With a new weekend upon us, 7th grade teacher Penny and I decided to see more of Changshu City. During my free Wednesday afternoon, I had done a small amount of exploring and had found, not too far from the rather unsightly in-city mall, something of an attractive avenue. Tree-lined and bustling with three-wheeler electronic tuk-tuks, it was only a single carriageway in each direction, a banal but welcome rarity when set against the busy wide highways you tend to find here. I had found a coffee shop down here where I had sat and speculated that there may be more to Changshu than I'd previously thought. Penny and I set off on bicycles, following the route of the number four bus across the lake, through the university campus, across a busy highway, and into the city. At the far end of the road we hit a canal, and on its other side was Changshu, the ancient city. We followed a canal north until we came to my street. Here we found boutique clothing shops, cafes, flower shops, and the most beautiful bus stops you're ever likely to find, each with those traditional sweeping Chinese roofing with the upturned eaves, known apparently as the Udian roof. This unmistakable roofing style goes back at least 1,800 years, and is now most often found on temples or in old parts of the city, like here. Apparently temples use this style because Buddhists thought curved roofs would hamper the flight of evil spirits much in the way that a Dalek's advance is stopped short by a staircase. We took a small road, little more than a path, away from the street to walk alongside a canal. Outside the tiny houses, laundry dried on bamboo poles and rice and other dry foods sat in large, flat wicker beds and baskets. The houses beside the canal had stone steps leading into the water. At the end of the rows of houses, decorated with Red Chinese lanterns swinging in the wind was a communal pavilion where locals do Tai Chi, play cards and chat. We walked past an open door and saw inside an elderly man of at least 60 years. He was slight, balding and surrounded by paintings done on rice paper. They were traditional scenes, two lovers on a lofty mountainside track, a waterfall above the clouds and things like this. He was extremely happy to have us as his brief guests in broken Chinese, we asked him, who was the painter? And he showed us his signatures on each one. Penny wanted to buy one, but to our protestations, he insisted on giving us one each. We eventually accepted and promised to return with gifts of our own. To this day, I must admit, I can't quite believe that this happened. This painter hidden amongst the shacks gave us some of his work, almost forced it into our hands. Changshu is known for a number of artists. Some 700 years ago, a young orphan named Lu Jian was adopted by a man called Huang Le, who remarked that he'd always wanted a son, fitting then that this son was given the name Gongwan. So his name was Huang Gongwan, or Huang's Longing. While living in nearby Hangzhou, past 80 years of age, Huang Gongwan painted Dwelling in the Fuchun Mountains, in black ink on a long scroll. And I do mean long, it's just shy of seven metres long. 
Believing that uh, one should only paint when inspiration struck, it took him three years to complete. The subsequent fate of the painting has become the stuff of legend. The long scroll was given to a fellow painter upon completion in 1350. By 1450, it had found its way to the Jiangsu painter Shen Zhou, who lost it while getting it inscribed. The calligrapher's son had swiped it from under his nose to make a quick buck. Eventually, it re-emerged on the market at a high price, which Shen Zhou could not afford. So he decided to paint a copy of Huang's painting from memory, and this copy now hangs in the Palace Museum in Beijing. Shen gave his copy to a friend, and he decided to track down the original. He found it, bought it, and invited Shen to inscribe it. What we know from the painting up to that point comes from the information in Shen's inscription. The scroll passed through the generations until Wu Hongyu possessed it. This would be during the Ming Dynasty, the penultimate ruling house. So enamoured was he of Fuchun Mountains that it was one of only two valuables that he took with him when he went into hiding during the invasion of the Manchu armies. When his time was finally up, he wasn't content to leave the scroll in the land of the living when he crossed over into the afterlife, so he decided to burn it and take it with him. Had it not been for his nephew, then that would have been the end of that. But the flaming scroll was saved, only now in two parts. The smaller of the two parts, after passing through more hands, ended up in Zhejiang Provincial Museum in Hangzhou, within walking distance of the depicted mountains. It's called the Remaining Mountain. And the longer section of the scroll got passed down among Qing Dynasty officials, and was taken to the Imperial Palace, where the Emperor himself decreed that it was a counterfeit. The version he already had was the real one, he said, which of course was actually the copy that Shen Zhou had made after losing the original. Long after the Emperor stepped down, the mistake was rectified, and once again it began changing hands. In the last days of the civil war between the Chinese nationalist government and the communists in the first half of the 20th century, this half of dwelling in the Fuchang Mountains, along with the cream of Chinese art, was taken by the nationalists as they fled to the island of Taiwan. Since then, Taiwan, or officially the Republic of China, has become a de facto state, briefly recognised by the UN as China proper, and then unrecognised when the People's Republic of China became rich and influential. Now Taiwan's political and diplomatic status is fuzzy, and a threat of war hangs over the island. The bigger half of the scroll still resides in Taiwan's National Palace Museum in Taipei. With one half in China and the other in Taiwan, the burned and divided dwelling in the Fuchan Mountains seems like nothing less than a prophetic metaphor for the huge revolutionary rift that beset China and split the nation in two. In 2011, after 360 years of separation, the peace was reunited in the National Palace Museum in Taiwan for an exhibition. A sign that art can bring enemies together? Or a new prophecy for Chinese reunification? The story continues. In the next episode, I will chat with a Taiwanese friend about these very questions. Further along the canal, we came to a Christian church. It was one of the barn variety that I imagine America to be strewn with, not the stone type that we have scattered across the UK. 
big and orange, it stood out against the pale stone of the nearby streets, shops and homes. In the back streets, the homes were more humble. No front gardens. Instead, the front is like a blank wall with a wooden or metal door in it. Many of these doors are left open and you can see a kind of courtyard or, for the smaller houses, a kind of porch which aspires to be a courtyard. If you're lucky, you'll spot a greying old woman crouching over a bowl cleaning vegetables. Even the new builds have something which approximates this, showing a lineage of thought from the old complex-style homes, with communal spaces central to the home-life experience. The roads were hardly more than paths, with little square bobbling paving slabs making the ground tricky to walk on. A narrow canal cut diagonally under the road, with houses lining it. It was so narrow that if you lived in one house, you could pretty much reach over the canal and tickle your neighbour while he slept. Soon enough, we emerged from the ancient district to come face to face with Yushan, Changshu's sole mountain. Yushan can be seen from anywhere in Changshu, provided a building isn't in your way. Presence here is conspicuous for the flatness of everywhere else. The mountain is only 300 metres tall, making it little more than a hill. That said, being the only lump of land for miles around, I think it deserves the title of mountain anyway. It gets its name from the ancient ruler of the local state of Wu, which was founded some 3,000 years ago by a pair of defecting brothers. The eldest, Taibo, is said to be the great-great-granddad of all those known as Wu, even John Wu, the man who made Mission Impossible 2. The youngest brother, known as Zhong Yong or Yu Zhong, is buried on the mountain and duly lent the Yu part of his name to it. Yu Shan goes back a fair distance, about six and a half kilometres, and sits alongside Shanghu Lake, mirroring it, with almost identical lengths and widths. They look like twins from above, one green and one blue. At the foot of the mountain is a scenic area comprising some water, quaint bridges, a zoo, a museum, and the city library. There are numerous routes up the mountain, stone-bricked pathways that begin under archways inscribed with graceful Chinese poems which I couldn't read. There's also a road if you're feeling lazy, but being with Penny, laziness was never in question. We had managed to find a small road away from the tourists. The tourists were all Chinese. In one year in Changshu, except for the teachers in the school, of course, I only ever saw a handful of Westerners, mostly in a single Western bar, which we will visit soon, and once in Papa John's Pizzeria. Anyway, nestled among the small white houses which were becoming increasingly familiar was the old traditional roofing of a public area, this time a large walled garden. We noticed four men sitting inside, drinking green tea, laughing, playing with a puppy. They saw us and ushered us in, and we sat with them for a while and tried to make conversation. With the slightly better Chinese, I attempted to communicate, but Penny's approach was more effective. Gesticulate wildly, nod an understanding at appropriate intervals, and laugh readily. The men pointed us to the rear of the garden where we saw a cute bridge in some trees, we crossed the bridge and began an ascent up some steps, passing small houses built into the mountainside. 
I imagine this to be some kind of old complex, probably for Taoist monks. Occasionally in Changshu, I would see a monk walking down the street, but the mountainside was monkless. The path wound round and somehow through the buildings, opening them up to everyone. They contained only the occasional broom or broken piano. Eventually we hit a back wall which Penny wanted to climb. I scrambled onto the ledge and peered over. The other side had a pretty steep drop, information which I relayed back to Penny. I could see her weighing up the risks in her mind. We turned around. We had not conquered Yushan's summit and were forced to retreat, descend and leave the compound. We said our goodbyes to the men in the garden, who were still drinking gallons of green tea, and looked for another way up. The steps were adjacent to the compound, tiny, steep and precarious. Before long we passed a small Buddha statue, and the number of walkers began to grow. Unsurprisingly, Yushan is one of the premier attractions of Changshu City, for the city dwellers know how important it is to get a whiff of cleaner air. On top of pollution, town planning drives people out of the cities for the weekends. While Changshu is fairly generous where it comes to trees, it has little time for parks. Apart from the communal pavilions for cards and tai chi, it's all roads, canals and buildings. So the green spaces, called scenic spots on the road signage, are utterly distinct. We came to a small yellow pavilion and looked inside. Please left civilization here than scrawl, it said on the wall, in Chinglish. We took the winding road the rest of the way up, passing a tiny man, hundreds of years old, with baggy trousers and a loose dark blue shirt. He climbed with the age of a stick and carried a huge pale sack over his shoulder, attached to another stick. He looked like a lost soul, a picture of storybook Chinese authenticity, but looked strange next to the groups of women in high heels who stomped past him. The cars were few and honked less than in town, as if to respect the old ears of the mountain. In China you drive on the right and usually walk on the right too. But no, not on Yushan, it didn't matter, left, right, middle, backwards, it was all good. After school hours, the Chinese staff sometimes walked backwards around the running track, for postures or muscles or something. I'd watch from my bedroom, waiting for them to fall over or walk into a tree. But they never did. Here, I thought, I'd have a better chance of seeing a comical slip, with people walking backwards up the hill. But still, they were sure-footed. Elsewhere, cyclists struggled up and pelted back down, Topless men ran up with Chinese songs blaring out of radios strapped to their hips, and Penny and I discussed the exponential growth of population and industrial farming. It wasn't the summit, but it was beginning to plateau. Beautiful dark grey brick, crisscross with pale cement, rose proudly before us in an imposing wall, with a huge arch and traditional building on top to welcome us. Above the arch it said, Yushan Gate in reverse, backwards writing having historical precedents on monuments and such. Here, tourist buses sped through, beeping like crazy. The hectic pace of Chinese life had caught up with us. According to the information board, this was the Little Great Wall of Jiangnan. Jiangnan meaning south of the river Yangtze. It was built in 1283 AD during the Yuan Dynasty the same era as when Huang Gongwan was here. Its length 
crossing only a few miles on the lower edge of Yushan. It's somewhat shorter than the real Great Wall of China's 13,000 or so miles, but at 8 metres tall it was still an impressive structure. It should still stop any warring tribes who happen to find themselves on the other side. The little grey wall of Jiangnan disappeared to the southwest down the mountain, a lone red lantern swinging with melancholy over the mountain's edge. We passed through the gates and continued to climb past fields of tea leaves and small tea businesses. The mountain wasn't going to get much higher. We were on its backbone, looking left over lakes and fields and right over the city. Changshu's Fengta Pagoda was the point of reference for the cityscape, although new office blocks rose much higher in other areas. We came to a large tea house and strolled around its grounds, getting apprehended by a group of four young men who wanted a picture taken with me, but not Penny. It was just us and a few other families here, sitting on stone stools beside stone tables. We chose a spot under a tiny pavilion, and the tea kept us nattering for hours until the man came to tell us that they were closing. We had perhaps gone one quarter of Yushan's length. The rest would have to wait. Back at school, the foreign teachers were compelled to do a group photo. It was for marketing purposes. Where our cheery faces were likely to end up, we had no idea, but we knew that the whiteness of our skin gave us a certain value which simply had to be shared. In a school, whiteness comes with the supposed promise of native, or excellent, English skills. As we all know, native English speakers often lack the ability to speak much in the way of English, much less do they understand how it works. Indeed, Chinese teachers who have become fluent in English tend to be far more cohesive, efficient English teachers but good luck convincing the parents of that. An email had circulated among the foreign teachers from Xin, who was doing her admin bit. Please meet at 12.10 in the Garden of Mediation, it read. Something of a Freudian typo, she meant to write Garden of Meditation, which was the noisy space central to all the classrooms. The photographer was joined by Abe and Shin presumably overseeing this occasion to make sure that tricky operation ran smoothly. The look on Cheryl's face said it all. This was overkill. To my horror, I realised that almost all of us, five of the eight, were wearing shades of purple and matched beautifully. In stark opposition to Western schools, as far as I remember it at least, photos of the kids are a way of life. Half the job involves posing or snapping. I had numerous awkward moments where the photographer showed up to shoot me in my element as a teacher. I would freeze in the glare of the camera lens, completely losing my rhythm. Penny got it the worst, though. The photographer and an admin assistant turned up at a classroom door and asked to take photos of the kids enjoying their lesson. Penny agreed. And the assistant went to the front of the room, pulled out some chocolates and said, Who wants? Inevitably, the hands shot up and the photographer snapped the kids, enjoying their lesson. The worst thing is, Penny said to me, if they'd only showed up in class to take genuine photos, they'd see that the kids are frickin' excited anyway. But there was a sense that foreign teachers weren't truly expected to teach. 
Sure, you can if you want, but handing out good grades, writing pleasantries to the parents, and making yourself available for publicity was more important. Penny found this particularly annoying, and it was a frustration deepened by the bad communication. We didn't find out about school trips or schedule changes until the last minute. We were, however, adorned with gifts, which made us feel like these mute princesses. This is not an uncommon situation to be in as an ESL teacher, and there are few reasons for this gulf in expectation and attitude. First, the language barrier makes communication challenging. Second, the differences in education culture mean that it's often easier for both parties to stick to their own realm. The managers tell the teachers what to do, and the teachers do it their own way anyway. Indeed, this is the healthiest attitude if you want to survive the duration of an English teacher in China. Third, the foreign English teacher is suspected to be a lazy soul, and, because of the threat of breaking the contract and going home, the management tried to make things simple and happy. In our situation, we also had the legacy of the first meeting, which was touchy to say the least. I also have a daughter here. Is this how you're treating the American children? And so it was that when the on-campus bakery opened up, we had a 50% discount. The Chinese teachers, with wages remarkably lower than ours, and ours remarkably longer than ours, had to pay the full price for their buns. You might think that this would cause tension between the foreign and Chinese workers, but the rupture, when it occurred, was all amongst the foreigners. Coming up on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, I share a little about whether teaching ESL in China is worth it. Really start to get to know the kids' personalities, get given a new class, and endure another meeting with the management. But first, a chat with a Taiwanese friend about Taiwan. Does the reunification of that painting offer a good omen for future relations? That's next time, and I hope to see you there.